Hey, J. Crew, Noah here. I edit the show. And this week, our three hosts, well, they forgot to record an obscenity warning while they were in the studio. However, they did not forget to be obscene. So consider yourselves warned and enjoy the program. I used to think minutia was a Jewish, was a Yiddish word. <laughs> like Menasha. Like, and then I like saw Manucha. it spelled and I was like, oh my God, I've like literally Latin. taken Latin for it's so a- long. How did you not know this? <laughs> Hello, J. Crew. This is Unorthodox, or in French, say Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined this week by Tablet senior writer and two-time New York City Marathon finisher, Liel Leibowitz. Hello, hello. A little bit sore there. Oh, my Lord. And deputy editor, Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Who has run no marathons. Zero marathons. Between us, we have two marathons. Between you, that's right. I'm so amazed. And as if to, to fatten you back up after all that weight loss, Liel, we have two Jews this week. Uh, both involved in the culinary world. Carrie Brody, who runs Emma's Torch, a cafe in Brooklyn completely staffed by refugees finishing culinary training. And food blogger Lily Diamond, founder of the blog Kale and Caramel. A very foodie November day to you both. How many times are you going to say culinary on this episode? Do you want to know why? So do you say culinary? Yeah. I once saw a Tonight Show episode with Tony Randall, you know, the late comedian and opera buff and general foppish, you know, esthete Tony Randall, where he was complaining about how people mispronounce culinary. And he said, oh, the kids these days are all saying culinary. And ever since I heard that, I feel I should say culinary. See you. So it's like cuneiform. Yeah. I mean, this is like the next mishmash, mishmash. (laughs) I'm almost afraid to let it. Or the beastly bomba, which is currently brewing on our Facebook Facebook page, page, right? I think that Tony Randall was the last person to say culinary. So I'm just keeping alive the spirit of of, of Tony Randall. It's like that word you use, cineast. Did I say cineast? Yes. And I was like, you sound like a real cineast. (laughs) (laughs) Blocked that out. Uh, Anyway, what's up, Jews? Uh, Liel, I think we should start with you. How how was your um, 53rd, yeah, 52.4th mile? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was incredible, man. Just Just awesome. pure joy. It's the most amazing, most difficult thing in the world. And and, uh, my, my wonderful wife, Lisa, found me. On mile four, which when you consider the fact that there are 60,000 other <laughs> runners is like an incredible, like, Beshert. Beshert. It was Beshert, yeah. And and we finished the last 22.2 miles together. Did you hold hands across the finish line? We did. Did you? That's yeah. so sweet. We absolutely did. And yet somehow her time is three minutes shorter <laughs> than mine. We literally held hands. Because she started later. You know, that's what they say, but it's but, fake news. Yeah. Come on. Come on. So you've opened me up to a new perspective, which is I'm much more impressed by people who take a long time to run the marathon. Because that is like that running is for six hours correct. is insane. That's right. Running for like two and a half hours. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I get it. You're good at this. Okay. You did it in three and a half hours. <laughs> Do good it for, for three times but, as much. But let's see you like be on your feet. For, so there was a guy. This is wave four. Wave four is the back of the bus. It's like the absolute <laughs> coolest misfits who like have no business being there, but are there still. And there was this guy, Dave. Dave had Dave. a sign on his jersey. Is like I'm 55 years old. I'm 35 pounds overweight, <laughs> but I could be on my feet for seven hours. And if that impresses you, here's my phone number. <laughs> and he literally had his phone number in it. This is the most amazing people on Wave Four. Shout out to former guest Matthew Futterman, mm-hmm. who ran a personal best like 10 minutes better than his all of his other nice. marathon times. In two hours, yeah, forty three. Minutes. I think it was like 3:15. That's um, good. Yeah, that, which is amazing. Just that's like really good. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he literally could run two marathons <laughs> in the time it takes me to finish But one. he didn't. Um, in other news, Rebecca is practicing for her bat mitzvah, 
and she's doing very well. She's learning one uh, one line a day for the next eight months or something. It's, Is that what you're supposed to do? Well, that's what her tutor uh, has her doing. It's and, a Duff Yomi version. Of- and what she did, her tutor is having her start at the end because of, of the whole Parsha because her tutor said, you know, a lot of kids start strong and then by the time they get toward the end, they're sort of like eh, kind of faking it. She's like, that's why you start at the end. So I said to her last night, I said, Shall have it Marcus sounds like the Mr. Miyagi of, of Haftorah teaching. Shall have it is She's like stand on one foot yeah. and do wax on, wax off. Yeah. And if your shoes aren't spit shine, she says, I'm coming back next week. Yeah. I mean, it's it's insane. And I said to Rebecca, this is amazing that you're learning this. I want to learn a little Torah trope. I won't do any of your Parsha, obviously, because you're doing your Parsha. But maybe that afternoon when they read from next Parsha, Saturday afternoon or something, I'll do one little short Aliyah. So maybe you'll teach me, like, you know, all that you've learned from Shalhevet. You'll teach me how to read Torah without skipping a beat. She says, what are you going to pay me? And Must I was like, be an Oppenheimer. <laughs> no, I'm thrilled that there's like I one like, Oppenheimer is like business minded. I was like, wait a second. Good. I was like, wait a second. You're my my daughter. She's like, right. But I mean, we pay shall have it good money to that's do this. A, like, right. I'm, I'm going to teach you. She said, I'm going to be very busy next fall, Dad. <laughs> I'm going to be playing Premier League U12 soccer. I'm going to be writing a bat mitzvah speech. I have homework. By the way, I think Rebecca's bat mitzvah is the new my wedding. I like think something so too. we talk about every week. Yeah. We probably will auction off a seat at a pew. <laughs> <laughs> except, are we going to be invited? Let's except, talk about this now. Except Benot and Mitzvah are open to all the world. Well, yeah, but not the party after. Plus, you could sell a liot. What? <laughs> what? When's the date? It's sometime in January. It's January. It's, it's Bushalach 2019. Okay, so I'll be there. We have a... Oh, you'll all be there. We have a, we have a, a whole year. To and right there. now, she says what we're doing is going bowling at Amity Lanes that <gasps> night for the party. I love that. My God. She's like, we're just going bowling. Everyone who's still in town Saturday night, we're going bowling. That's really cool. So you guys going to stay for the bowling? I love it. Here's a question for you. Is there any reason for the graphic novel version of The Diary of Anne Frank to exist? Because in News of the Jews this week, two Anne Frank stories... We'll start with the less troubling one. The first is new graphic I novel mean, like, version. Like every week. Like two every week. Frank, Frank stories. The people who did the movie Waltz with Bashir, the illustrators, uh, now bring us the graphic novel version of the diary of Anne Frank. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Would you read that finally? Is that is <laughs> that a, a convenient? You read the audio version of that. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to because I can learn about Anne Frank by going to see this new play in the Netherlands, which you flagged for us this morning, Liel. Uh, this is an amazing play. Uh, it's it's the story of Anne Frank adapted with one glaring exception. Mark, what is the glaring exception? If I'm not mistaken, it's that they don't mention that she's Jewish and there are no Nazis involved. That is correct. It's just... Question, what happens in this play? (laughs) So so here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking this play, which again is the story of Anne Frank without mentioning Jews or Nazis, is secretly the third season of the Netflix runway hit Stranger Things, in which uh, Elle, the telekinetic girl, uh, finds a new friend in the Upside Down named Anne, who's been hiding in an attic, not from the Nazis, but from the Demogorgon. And then she joins with the other kids uh, to ride her bike around Hawkins, Indiana and be very happy. Except that the author, the playwright, who has a history of uh, anti-Jewish comments, like he right. referred to a fellow Dutch writer as a militant Jew one time. Uh, the the playwright has added a, um, a sex subplot in which she is um, – Sexually assaulted. Sexually assaulted by the dentist who's living there. What? With them. So why are yeah. they all there then? Like, why is, are they all in the attic? Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> all of a sudden he appears. So a dress rehearsal, I'll read from the, the Jewish Telegraphic Agency article. A dress rehearsal last week attended by several critics included an invented assault by Fritz Pfeffer against Margot Frank and Frank's sister. Pfeffer was a real life Jewish dentist who was hiding with Frank and her family and died in the Holocaust. It has never been alleged that he assaulted Frank or anyone else. 
this is the best part, is that the playwright said, the diary itself contains no drama. What actually happens in the secret annex, seen through the <laughs> eyes of a 13-year-old, is a bit lean for a theater show. Yeah, Sorry, so that I, was it was the director who said that. There are the, no bad guys. This is the problem with the Anne Frank story. There are no bad guys yeah, in the story. Yeah, none of tension up there in that attic. So what? We this probably need a villain in the story. You know, how about a rapist dentist? Very good plot. Because, I mean, Jesus when you take Christ. out the whole Nazi Holocaust part, there actually is literally no tension in the story. It's like, why are they <laughs> that, in the attic? Right. <laughs> why are they all up there? Uh, 59-year-old engineer Joe Briggs, who's running for city council in a small town outside Atlanta, Georgia, has a bit of a Jewish problem. He has told the local newspaper that, quote, Zionists in Israel are far worse than anything described in Mein Kampf. Get over it. Later, he tweeted, get the Jews out of the White House and out of POTUS's ear. And in another tweet, he wrote, at least the Nazis assimilated and contributed to U.S. society. But <laughs> but he insists he's not a racist. They Just to be clear, yeah. so not a racist. The Nazis assimilated into U.S. society? I guess he means the ones who secretly fled here assimilated, i.e. Hid, hid until they were like 95 <laughs> and found right. out that they were living in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah. Well, have Adam, suburban Atlanta. He's uh, He wants to be your city council rep. A very rich, robust news of the Jews this week, I should say, you know, from Anne Frank well, to- Well, rich and robust, like the Jews themselves. That's right. <laughs> That's right. It ends with probably the world's two most famous Jews. Um, the first is, of course, Larry David, who went on Saturday Night Live and joked about the Holocaust <laughs> and <laughs> talked about how so many of the outed <laughs> sexual harassers are Jews, thus causing Jews everywhere to um, be mad at him for saying what had been noticed by other Jews. No, but hold on. Anyway. But then there was a coda to, to the monologue. I've often wondered, if, I, if I'd grown up in Poland when Hitler came to power and was sent to a concentration camp, would I still be checking out women in the camp? I think I would. Yeah. I don't know why he went there. It didn't make, he couldn't, like, it didn't make sense. It just sort of thought, like, he had a funny thought about, uh, like, a concentration camp scene a bit, and then he wanted to, like, put it somewhere, so he put it in this monologue. There are no good opening lines in a concentration camp. They're treating you okay? You know, if we ever get out of here. This is a comedian who started out his career, my, my favorite Larry David story ever. <clears throat> He went out. He was a terrible stand-up comic. He hated it because he hated the audience, right? And at one time, he went out. He took the mic. He looked at the audience and then said, ah, forget it, and walked out. (laughs) (laughs) To me, this is what he did on Saturday night. He's like, you know what? Forget it. (laughs) You're like, what? What'd I say? Is it me or is it the whole thing? It's because I'm bald, isn't it? Here's what I need from our listeners. I know a lot of you have been following this story. Some of you may be offended by Larry David's jokes. Some of you may not. What I want to know is if you were offended, does that mean you're offended by us every time we tell Holocaust jokes and Anne Frank jokes and all that stuff? And if not, what's the difference, right? If you're if you're offended by him but not us, what is it we pull off so successfully? Because I honestly – my first thought was well, I don't really see the difference. Like we've had this – we've gotten this letter from people saying you can't joke about that. And then we say actually, yes, we can. You can't say meow schwitz on air. Exactly. You can't play a Holocaust beauty pageant cutie pie song by Jim Nabel like – and yet we do. And here we are. And I'd love to know, seriously, if if you think that Larry, if you have been muttering to your spouse, partner, children, pinochle partner, like, I can't believe Larry David did that. But you're an unorthodox listener. What is it we pull off that he doesn't? And if, if you can't name that, then I think you have to maybe give give Larry David a little more credit. I think context is important here. Like there's something weird. There's something different about us basically doing this Jewish pr- program. And as opposed to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> 
Really? I don't know. I'm, I'm curious to see what people say. I want to see what people say. Uh, finally, the most important bit of news of the Jews in maybe in history ever. ever um, the Genesis Prize, endowed by a bunch of Russian Jewish oligarchs, uh, has has been given this year. As of this morning. Like, as this of is breaking this news. Morning to Ms. Natalie Portman Ney Herschlag of Great Great Neck? Syosset? Syosset. But also Syosset. technically Israel. And Israel. Uh, it's in their press release. They once again have called it the Jewish Nobel because that's what Jews needed was a Nobel just yeah. for us. Yeah, a Nobel that we actually won. <laughs> that's right. Previous winners include Michael Douglas, Michael uh, Bloomberg, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> it's like so. Basically, this is the prize as I can, as far as I can tell, for already wealthy intermarried Jews in the diaspora. This is movie a star. Pri- movie basically, stars. what it is is it's a million dollars, right? It's a million dollars, but it's like so none you, of these give people it to remotely you. need. They they don't give it to you. They they basically have you direct where it goes. So Michael Douglas picks a cause and then a million dollars get get put to that cause. And so Natalie's is if I may, Natalie's is going <laughs> to sort of Nats. um programs that empower women in all sorts in all spheres of life, some in America and some in Israel. The best thing is that the press release, which has a, a super foxy picture. I mean Yeah, I don't know what that's t- not typical Natalie. They said send us your your yeah. best, most sultry outtake. Um uh calls her a Genesis Prize laureate. Yeah. So it's you know Shlomo, you know what we need? <laughs> we need a prize for Jews that would really shed light on their work. Like people nobody knows, you know, like Michael Douglas or Michael Bloomberg or, or Natalie Portman, people who don't have enough money or recognition and who do really important things like that movie Friends with Benefits with Ashton Kutcher. Okay, that really? was an important cinematic moment. <laughs> I think so too. Let's let's award that a million dollars. Could we if Adam Sandler does not win the Genesis Prize next year, I am going boycotting on a tear. the ceremony. I'm boycotting everything. Uh, some new newsletter subscribers. We welcome to the subscriber community the law firm this week of Howard Wasserman, Gary Sims, Michelle Carp, Rory Brisky, Natalie Huff, and Rochelle Broder Singer. Natalie Huff. Who is? What Natalie do we know about her? So I think Stephanie knows. Natalie her. Huff is spelled H U F F. So she's actually the third. What? That was my huffing. Oh, that was, huff- okay, that was me sorry. huffing glue. I, like, I was like, do that off mic, dude. <laughs> um, she's the third sibling of. Julianne and Derek Huff, who are the Dancing with the Stars phenom sibling pair. <laughs> she Absolutely. was the one with no rhythm. She didn't have rhythm. And she was just like, I don't, it's confusing because their name is spelled like H-O-U-G-H. And she's just like, I, it's not me. Couldn't live up to it. Yeah. It's like, it's too wild. She was the one like, you know what? I could do dancing or, or a PhD in Jewish history. Yeah. She's like, that's sure, more I'm my speed. I'm going with that. <laughs> Change her name. Here she is. Here she is. She decided to stay home and listen to Jewish podcasts that's while right. her siblings are off ruling the Do world. You think, Welcome, I mean, Professor Huff. That's a tough name because you get a lot of like, I huffed and I puffed and like when you're younger in a weird way. What would you know about tough last names? Yeah. It, build, yeah, it builds freaking character. It builds character. <laughs> this newsletter that they subscribe to is not the regular tablet newsletter. No, it is not. It's an elite, elite Elite is an elite way of saying elite. Yes, it's an elite, elite uh, specially, special forces, special ops newsletter. Which is why Liel writes it. Penned by our own very, very IDF cool. veteran Liel Libowitz. To get this newsletter, sign up on our website, tabletmag.com, or send an email pleading for it to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Put something like, you know, subscribe or send me the goddamn newsletter in the subject line. While you're at it, please rate us on iTunes, share us on Facebook, join our new Facebook group up to about 700 participants. If you go to the tablet Facebook page and then click on groups, you can find the group Unorthodox Podcast. And as a special perk, uh, as you well know, those of you who 
get the newsletter, there is a question of the week uh, most weeks. And starting this week, we will be posting some of these questions of the week to you, the listeners, and incorporating some of our favorite answers in our newsletter. Nice. So join that Facebook group. To the mailbox. Just a, a few sweet, sweet letters. Um, we need a mailbox theme. Mailbox. Mailbox. Yeah. It's the mailbox. We just it's got where a people... letter. If any of you out there is is a, is a songwriter, uh, you know, write a theme for us. Send, it, send us an MP3 of the mailbox theme. Uh, we have a lot of letters flooding in for our upcoming advice episode. We're going to do some advice episodes. We're not doing those yet, but we have a few really choice letters of people who need advice. Uh, this week, three um, – three – Really sweet quality letters, I would say. Uh, hey, J. Crew, I recently made Aliyah, and I wanted to thank you all for keeping me connected to the Jewish American world. Every Thursday, I listen to you on my crazy bus rides to Ulpan. Not only do I love your podcast, but it keeps me from not going crazy from all the aggressive Israelis on the bus. But Maza aggressive Israelis on the bus. How dare you? Not aggressive. Very well, nice people. Just Unorthodox makes my feelings of homesickness disappear, and I just wanted to thank you all for that. Now, please come do a live show in Israel. Thank you, Sammy Klaskin. Sammy Claskin, man. You know, we're working on it. We're yeah. working on it. Um, next letter. This is this is actually my favorite letter of the week. No, no disrespect to the other letter writers. Okay. I don't play favorites, but this is my favorite. Dear Unorthodox, I must write to you all because I'm not really sure what I would do without Unorthodox. For I myself am terribly unorthodox. Jewish, of course, lesbian, and politically incorrect with a couple tattoos. One of them is in Hebrew, of course. Anyway, keep doing what you're doing. You're funny, smart, witty, and of course, sassy, mostly Liel. I love the irreverent humor with a U, giving a something of a giveaway to this woman's background, and the guests you all have. I've tried to explain the podcast to my shiksa girlfriend who hails from a very small town in Nebraska, but alas, I have not had much luck with that. Love to you all, Linda Soreff. We need. I want. I want her girlfriend as a listener. That yeah. is our yeah. goal. I want to be more accessible. Like I want. We're gonna. We we're gonna a get a special episode yeah. just for her. Just I for, would do that. Like, just for the shiksa girlfriend from Linda Nebraska. Because if we're not us, reaching her, then we. Yeah. Have Linda Soreff, write to us and, and and tell us what we could do to to yeah. convert your girlfriend <laughs> into our listener. Right. We will and not we'll rest. We will not rest That's until right. we've made a listener of your girlfriend. Greetings, unorthodox. I've been a fan of the podcast for a while now. As a Jewess studying the relationship between religion and politics at a Catholic university, my life is generally unorthodox. It became even more so when I began my fall semester in Amman, Jordan. I'm here to study Arabic. However, per usual, my most interesting experiences have been outside the classroom as I learn more about Jordan, Jordanians, and their attitude toward Jews. It's definitely been hard having to lie about my religion to most people, but due to the recent skirmish at the Israeli embassy in Jordan this past summer, increased Al-Aqsa tensions, and the 100th anniversary of the Balfour Declaration, lying is a necessary part of my daily life. So nothing is better than being able to connect with the tribe by listening to Unorthodox each week. The only thing that might top the feeling of Unorthodox is the feeling I get when I have finally left Israeli Customs after crossing through Allenby King Hussein and knowing that I don't have to lie about my religion and ancestry for a few days. Shavuot Tov from Jordan. Keep the podcast coming. Yours, an anonymous Jewess in Jordan. Shavuot Tov from Amman, I think, really should be a podcast of its own. It really should. first Jewish guest this week is Carrie Brody. She created Emma's Torch, which is a cafe in Red Hook that also doubles as a culinary school for refugees and political asylum seekers. She is the best person in this room right now. <laughs> Thank you. Well, one might I mean, say she deserves a Genesis prize. Yeah. Yeah. If we're giving out say, prizes. Genesis committee. Uh, here's a Jew who lives out Jewish values and inspires people. So Carrie, tell us a little bit how you started Emma's Torch. The name is perfect. You could explain that a little bit to us as well. 
Um, so my background is actually in public policy. I was working in Washington, D.C., um, where most recently I was at the Human Rights Campaign. And before that, I was at the Israeli embassy. Um, but in the meantime, I was also volunteering at a number of homeless shelters and really intrigued by this idea that food is something that's so universal, the experience of cooking, the experience of eating. Um, and we're not really maximizing how we can use that to promote social change. So I had this really crazy idea that for years I used to tease my husband about, well, one day I'm just going to leave it all behind and do this. Um, and eventually he looked at me and said, so this joke you keep making, that's not funny. Um, what's holding you back? Who are you waiting for? Um, and so that fateful conversation was almost exactly two years ago. Um, jokes on him because I quit my job. I went to culinary school. Um, and then I, I founded Emma's Torch, where we do culinary training um, for refugees and survivors of human trafficking and asylees. Um, and as you mentioned, we're named after Emma Lazarus. Um, I'm a really big Jewish history nerd. And so I loved the idea of being able to bring to light this woman who was full of chutzpah. She was a total maverick um, lady who wrote the poem that's on the Statue of Liberty. Oh, I, I thought in the spirit of the Genesis Prize, you named it after Emma Stone. Who <laughs> she did doesn't really get enough attention. Work in, yeah, crazy, stupid <laughs> or love. after Gwyneth's character in Emma. Right. <laughs> so how do you find the refugees, refugees that are going to be part of the program? What's what's that process like? So when I was founding Emma's Torch, one of the first thing I did was met with the experts because um, I'm, I was at the time 25 years old. I'm not an expert. So I met with a lot of the refugee resettlement workers who are doing this day in and day out. And I asked them, what do you need? And so that's kind of how we shape the program. And so six months or a year later, when I went back to them and said, so I built this program who does it benefit? They've been sending me clients. So I get emails or calls pretty much every day with referrals for the program. And we work really closely with those caseworkers to make sure that we are all working together to support these individuals. The program being what? Tell us a little bit more about what, what actually goes on. So the program's a lot of fun. Our students come in. They're with us at the moment for eight weeks. Um, they're with us for 24 hours a week. And so about a third of that time is spent doing the stuff you would learn in culinary school. So how do you medium dice a potato? How do you make a sauce? How do you follow a recipe? Um, and then the other two thirds are actually working in the cafe. And so every week that they're with us, the menu gets a little bit more complicated and it changes a little bit do, more. Do they help set the menu? They do. So we really enjoy the collaboration that happens. Usually what will happen is week one, our students will be like, no, no, I, I don't want to say anything. And then week two, they start to show us, you know, oh, if you do this with saffron, you can do whatever. Or, you know, the way I make rice is this. And then slowly we start to add things to the menu that they are really bringing from home. So we have our shakshuka from one of our students in Saudi Arabia. Excuse me. I know. <laughs> um, and we even things like how we use spices or how we think about flavor profiles is really inspired by whoever's in the program at any given moment. Wait, sorry, I'm going to I'm going to reality TV nerd out on you here. So the only the only place I've ever heard flavor profile before is on MasterChef where Gordon says it all the time. People really say that flavor profile. Oh, yeah, they really I thought it was do. a Gordon Ramsay thing. No flavor profile, mouthfeel. A lot of these words. Do you talk about the cook really on know. things. There's a good cook on this. Gordon's into the cook on things. Gordon's on the cook on things or the Great British Bake Off. Yeah. That's, a, that's a good bake. That's a good bake. That's a good I bake. feel the need yeah. to say that often. I don't think anybody <laughs> else does, though. Who are your students uh, ethnically? Where are they from? Are you getting them mostly from one country or two or three countries? So something that not a lot of people realize is how long the refugee resettlement process takes. So when I kind of went into it, I thought, oh, we're just going to have a ton of Syrians in our program. And if you look at the numbers, that's just not the the most represented group of people who have made it here. Um, we see a lot of our students come from West Africa. 
Um, quite a few of the survivors of human trafficking are coming from South America. And then asylees are coming really from all over the world. So we had we were doing an English class in our cafe for over the summer for 12 weeks. And I think we had eight students in seven different countries represented. That's so cool. And what's the best dish any one of them has made? What What is the thing where you think, oh, the, the mouthfeel, the cook, the bake, uh, the flavor profile? Oh, no, you're going to get me in trouble. I can't yes. play favorites, yes, you but can. I can. No. Um, <laughs> so I think actually we had a student um, and she is just this incredible baker and she had magical hands. I don't know what she did, but she'd take our recipes and just she made these mushroom galettes that were mm. like Sent from heaven, so delicious. Um, she also is selling cookies on the side. Her name, her, she sells Casa Cookies. You can follow her on Instagram. We've been chatting with her about how to market things. She's a refugee from France. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, all of our students are just so talented, and they've gone on to work at some of the best restaurants in New York. How has the reality TV world not found Emma's torch? I mean, you could they could follow an incoming class of so good, yeah, of refugees. They get here, right. all of a sudden they're being trained to work in cafes, restaurants. They're from, they don't have a common language. I imagine a lot of them don't speak English. And of course, a competition element could be great. <laughs> That's right. Like at the end of it, one of you gets to stay in America. <laughs> oh my God. So it sounds... we're horrible people. Yeah. Yeah. This no. is why you're uh, here. And, and yeah, we're we just need you. I'm laughing. serious though. That would be an amazing show because it, it sounds, it just sounds remarkable. Thank you. I mean, we've gotten really lucky. There've been a lot of, a lot of press opportunities and a lot of people have come into the space um, to see what's happening. Who knows? Uh, if Food Network, if you're listening, yeah. uh, you know where to find me. Netflix. Yeah. Little let's, let's activate, we're going to activate the worldwide Master conspiracy class. for you. Okay. So if some of these refugees are, are, you know, have really been in horrific situations or victims of human trafficking and stuff like that, how do you train your staff to know? I mean, it's not just running a cooking school. It's actually running a, like, so almost like a rehabilitation program. And that's something that I always am very careful with, that I want to make sure that first and foremost, we're doing no harm. I can't imagine what our students have been through. And in the cases where I know very explicitly what they've been through, I don't want them to feel like they have to relive that, think about that or work through that while they're with us. We're a safe space. So we often get asked, you know, can you share a story about a student and the horrors they endured? And and my answer is pretty much no, because we make sure that when our students walk into our facilities, they are walking in as future chefs. They're not walking in as victims. They're not walking in as refugees. They're walking in as individuals. And so we go through a lot of training internally with the team about how to facilitate that. So we've met with a lot of experts who talk to us about, you know, what is the experience like? What are some triggers that could offset, you know, progress? But then one of the one of the people who was leading a training session with us, I, I asked them, I was like, you know, do I need to be worried? What do I say? What do I do? And she's like, look, these are the most resilient people you will ever have the honor of meeting. Treat them with respect and it's going to be OK. And that's kind of how we've gone forward. But it's it's definitely complicated and it's something that we're really cognizant of. Right. I, I, I was just thinking about this. It's like, well, you know, the pressures of uh, working in a kitchen could be really high. It's like, well, so could a 48 day bombardment on your city. So I think it's going to be fine for dinner. You know, we're good. What's your story? Where'd you come from? How'd you get here? Why are you such a good person? Yeah. What's wrong with you? How do I raise kids to be like you? I got kids. I am definitely not a good person, um, but thank you. Um, <laughs> so I, my family is South African. Um, so my family history, my, like most South Africans, was they were the lucky few who left Lithuania, got to South Africa. During the apartheid, they decided that was not what they wanted to be a part of and left in the early 80s. Um, and so my family lives in Washington, D.C., and they all have very funny South African accents and cook a lot. Um, when I was a bratty kid, I used to say to my parents, you know, 
South Africa was such a terrible society. What were you doing? You know, why weren't you fighting against this? And then in my 20s, I started looking in the mirror and thinking, okay, we're living during one of the worst refugee crises the world has ever seen. We're talking about 65 million people worldwide. What am I doing? And what's what's my excuse? And so even though our work is so contained and it's really a tiny drop in the bucket, it's a little corner of Brooklyn where where at least I can feel that we're making a difference. And, you know, the individuals that we impact hopefully will go on and they, too, will look in the mirror and make a difference. And I hope that's how we can promote change. So if people want to experience Emma's Torch. They can just go eat there, right? Yeah, definitely. I may, I may even go to Brooklyn for this. I got to tell you, which is a big thing. Yeah, Leal doesn't go to Brooklyn. Yeah. He only goes to Brooklyn for... Like to Jay-Z. run through it, right? Yeah. To run or, or to run through, <laughs> to run through it. Yeah. So how do people? How do people find out more? How do they go there? So um, you can follow us on Facebook, which we are Emma's Torch Food. Same deal on Instagram. But the best thing is to go to Emma's and sign up for our newsletter. We do not bombard you very much, but you'll hear lots of exciting updates, both about our current cafe, which is ending at the end of the month, and then our new full-scale restaurant that will be opening in early 2018, still in Brooklyn, but closer to the subway. Where's it going to be? I'm sorry, closer to the what now? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's a lost cause. (laughs) So we are still finalizing the location, but we'll have a big announcement on that hopefully in the next month. That's so exciting. That's amazing. So now New Yorkers, uh, and I say this with a lot of love, are, are complete assholes when it comes to dining out you know there are expectations do you see the same sort of people or the people who come to you are nicer because they feel like they're doing something for a cause they're like excuse me i'm sorry you're human trafficked but like i've been waiting for my burrito for six minutes now like do you get that so of course we love our customers every (laughs) single one of them they're the best people they're the best people people. but what i love about the cafe is i actually thought that most of our customers were just going to be my friends but we're in brooklyn and it's far so while my friends have been there thanks guys um it's actually mostly people who are just walking in after they've been to Ikea or they're exploring Red Hook and they have expectations that are sky high and we want to meet them because we don't want to be the place you go because you want to feel good about, you know, supporting the cause. We want to be that place you go because you really want something delicious. It's interesting when you're saying all of this, I think about when you go to a restaurant, the kitchen you don't see, right? You're very much removed from who's creating your food and it's this anonymous experience in a lot of ways. But to suddenly have to think about, oh, the people who are making my food I imagine all rest. I mean, there's just a way in which it, it opens your mind a little bit to think about where your food is coming from and and who's making it. Well, that's definitely something we want to focus on because it's not just about supporting our students. It's also about impacting change in the restaurant industry because there is this anonymity. We New Yorkers love to be foodies, but do we ever think about who's who's prepping your food? And beyond the usually man who is given praise for creating this food, there are hundreds of people who are working day in and day out 24-7 to create that food and to create it with love and create it with expertise. And so we really do want people to start thinking about what is the food you're eating? Where does it come from? And how can you as a consumer make a difference? Because where you choose to buy that avocado toast and mimosa can actually impact change in a way that sometimes policy is a little bit slow to do. Amen. I could get behind that that type of political statement. What do I have all to right. do? Well, Buy an avocado toast. We'll, see, we'll see all of you at Emma's Torch, which you can find at emmastorch.org. Carrie, thank you so much for being here. <laughs> Guys, so I went behind your backs. 
Um, Because I found out that Lily Diamond, who runs Kale and Caramel, which is a really great food blog, was coming to New York to celebrate the publication of her new cookbook, Kale and Caramel. Um, So I brought her into the studio while you guys were doing like whatever you do when you're not here. Well, we were mansplaining. Well, you were mansplaining. And we had this amazing conversation. You didn't even invite us. Well, I did not invite you. Yeah. Yeah. How was it? It was worth it. It was great. She's, She's so great. She's from Hawaii, like has all has just like such good vibes and energy um <laughs> she turned you into a new age well i just come back and why you'll hear all all about it she's 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 amazing it's all sort of like mostly plant-based and just like no yeah Mar- yeah it was I great like no i'm sure she's fabulous I just like here you are talking about her vibes and her energy that's no, what i know I'm i laughed and i was just like should i go back to hawaii like we should like, all am go I back doing to hawaii. something wrong so all right so let's listen to some lily diamond so you say on maui right like so if i said yes. in maui yeah on maui or in X town okay. on Maui. I grew up as like a white Jew on Maui uh, on the side of the mountain. So how many white Jews are there? Are they all in that area? I like, want to say they're approximately like 27.4. I feel like they might all be listening. Yes. So we should, we should, we say should really to speak to them, like individually acknowledge them. So what's the Jewish life like there? I mean, we'll talk about everything else yeah. that, that well, happens there too, but... My parents fled organized religion. My mom was from uh, South Bend, Indiana. She passed away in 2008, so I say was. she. Her family still is in Indiana. My father grew up in Sacramento. They both um, grew up in very Jewish families that somehow also celebrated Christmas, but that's another story. Uh, and my maternal grandmother was actually the first female president of Temple Bethel in South Bend, Indiana, which I have like a lot of pride That's around. Amazing. Right? Yeah. But my parents were not into that world and that scene. And they very much were children of the 60s and 70s. And the hippie spiritual movement um, really looked a lot to the philosophies of the East and ended up, they actually met on Maui in the late 60s or early 70s, I should say, and then ended up uh, living together in Northern California. They got married. I was born. And then I was kind of born into like a hippie commune type situation, um, a group of people that called themselves the Alive Tribe. I like that. That's like, it's a kind of Jewish. <laughs> it is kind of Jewish. It's like, there may be some of us tribe members. They're like, we are all from the tribe, but we're the alive versions. We're like, we're awoken. Totally. Awakened? What is the word? Awakened, but woke. Yeah, they're definitely, they were pre-woke. So so was there like Jewish ritual in your life or they just like, were done with that? No. So actually... The the Alive Tribe was non-denominational, was a non-denominational cult, <laughs> um, but uh, as all the best are, mm-hmm. but um, it was really, really centered around ritual. So they would create a lot of their own rituals. And when we left the Alive Tribe, um, we moved to Maui and... Um, I definitely grew up with a lot of ritual and some Jewish ritual in my life. So every year we celebrated Hanukkah. We said the prayers both in you know Hebrew and in English. Um, unclear how much liberty my parents <laughs> took in their translation of those prayers. Um, and uh, and and my mom also created like one of my absolute favorite childhood memories is my mom kind of created her own ritual around Hanukkah, which was to uh, make each candle commemorative of some. Um, aspirational trait or uh, wish. So it would be like, you know, the first night would be for peace and the second night would be for joy and 
you get the idea. And it was really lovely and also such a nice way to not speed through the holiday and to really make each night um, mean something special to us and to our family. Uh, and then we also celebrated with um, the other 27.4 Jews on Maui uh, <laughs> Passover. Hey, guys. Hey. And that was that was the the extent really of my um, Jewish ritual upbringing. And then, of course, when I hit that age where we all become by we, I mean, like Jews <laughs> obsessed with learning about the Holocaust, like I hit that age around, I don't know, 11 or 12, yeah, whenever it, it happens. Like six and a half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, there you it go. Happens to everyone Precocious. Time, yeah. Yes. Um, and I ended up you know, just consuming as much like literature as I possibly could about the subject and doing, I did my eighth grade project. I wrote this novella called The Tangled Web of Life. That is so intense. (laughs) Though those are not Maui vibes. Not Maui (laughs) vibes at all. I became really obsessed with this idea of like, what would have happened if a Jewish child had been adopted by a Gentile family pre- Kristallnacht and then like in the wake of all of that what would happen to that child like would they be forcibly taken from their family so I like created this whole world in which whatever I got to play out my all of my so it was like a nice my sunny childhood questions. happy happiness beach everything and then I went to the beach okay so let's talk a little bit about kale and caramel I mean a lot of our for a lot of our listeners the first thing they do is you know check Instagram and find their favorite food bloggers and things like that but for for some of our listeners, they might not be as familiar with um, the concept. Can you explain a little bit about how you got started writing about food online and sort of what kale and caramel means? Yeah, absolutely. So kale and caramel, I started in 2012. I had never read a blog. I didn't know what blogging was. I had friends who really wanted me to start a blog because they wanted a place where they could go to recreate the recipes that I would make for us when we had dinners which I thought was a very lovely and sweet idea, except that I don't use recipes. So I was sort of like, I I, I get it. And I also don't know, this won't work because... <laughs> no, it's magic. It yeah, comes for me. I just like throw things in a pan. And so one friend of mine um, generously offered slash threatened that she was going to stand over my shoulder and just write down, make me measure everything and write down measurements for two weeks. And so that was its inception. I didn't know what I was going to call it, but I had this feeling like, oh, maybe I should call it whatever, you know, or my two favorite foods. And the two first foods that I thought of were kale and caramel. For me, kale and caramel also were representative of these, a a larger kind of gestalt around eating healthfully, but having some kind of whimsy and like freedom in the kitchen and not being too confined to a particular um, health or wellness or food methodology or, you know, doctrine. Um, I really firmly believe that we all need to eat individually what our bodies ask for. I eat a primarily plant-based diet, but I'm I also eat everything. And I'm very clear about that because I was raised vegetarian, so I have like a lot of weird food fears. <laughs> And you're Jewish, so. <laughs> yeah, and I'm Jewish. <laughs> exactly. So I, you know, it, vegetarianism was sort of like hard to kick <laughs> for me. But I, uh, 
it's important to me not to be super dogmatic about food because I think that so easily veers into obsession and all kinds of really sad um, food-ish that uh, a lot of people deal with. And so I try to keep the space as open and welcoming for everyone as possible. So this cookbook um, is different and it's it's pretty obvious from the table of contents. It's organized into herbs and flowers and the chapters have titles like basil, sage, lavender, jasmine. Why did you decide to organize the book this way? And could you tell us a little bit about some of the recipes inside and how it sort of made up the architecture of, of the book? Yeah. So the book in many ways is the story of me and my mother. And my mother, as I mentioned, um, she was an aromatherapist. And so in a lot of ways, my first language was plants growing up. Like before I spoke, when, you know, my mom was, I would wake up from naps and my mom would take me around outside to wake me up and sort of name the different plants and flowers that we were looking at in the garden. And I, I grew up with a really strong familiarity um, to what the healing properties of each of those herbs and flowers were. Uh, My parents had a body care and spa product company on Maui. And so I also grew up creating with my mom all kinds of weird, you know, concoctions to slather on my body and um, really uh, with a strong understanding that the the products that were most helpful and most effective to use on my skin were also the products that were going to be the most pure. And a lot of those are even edible. Um, and as I said, the the narrative that threads through the entire book is the story of, it's a love story. It's a story of, you know, my relationship with my mother and then my relationship with her through her illness and her death. And I think that um, having the framework of those herbs and those flowers to ground me through telling the story also allowed me to show how each of those plants helped me heal with their various healing properties. So the book is really, really personal, and it tells the story, you know, of of what ha- your relationship with your mother and and what happens to her. And it's obvious that these these herbs and these and these flowers help you helped you de- deal with with what happened and, and the aftermath in your life. Did it make it easier to sort of share such a personal story um, in, in in this format, like with that with that structure? I think so. Yeah, I actually wrote just a straight memoir about this time with my mother, her illness and her death uh, in the years right after she died. And I ended up, you know, putting it in a drawer in my desk and letting it just sit. There are a lot of pieces of that book in this current book. For me, there's something about being in the kitchen in a place where you're dealing with food and ingredients and scents in a completely tangible way that allows you to take steps forward that are are completely um, com- completely different from any other avenue of healing. So sharing these recipes and um, giving myself a, you know, the space to really talk about how these these recipes help me to heal was a whole added element of, um, I don't know, I want to say almost like a, a stillness around the the anxiety and intensity of of the grief. No, that's beautiful, and it's 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 really a beautiful tribute to your mother. I think the book um, as yeah. a whole and. I think to me, the most meaningful 
experience around having the book published has been just getting an incredible number of notes and messages and emails and letters from people who have also, you know, lost a mother, lost a parent, um, and really hearing them say, like, it's so rare to be able to hold something in my hands that speaks to exactly how I'm feeling. And that more than anything, like if there is one page or one recipe or one word in this book that can make someone feel a little bit less alone, that was all that I wanted. And so to hear that echoed back made me just so happy. It's wonderful. So this is a Jewish podcast. We got to talk. We got obviously we are talking food, but let's talk Jewish food. Um, you have some really fun recipes on your site, uh, like purple sweet latkes and everything mini challah. Like, what are some Jewish recipes that you love and that you make every year? I love making really weird latkes every year. So I did those um, purple sweet potato latkes a couple years ago. Um, last year, I did harissa butternut latkes, which were like so good. Oh no, they were. Yeah, they were um, sp- like spice butternut latkes with a harissa creme fraiche instead of just straight sour cream um, and applesauce. Ugh. What do you think I should put in my latkes this year? We've done a few recipes on our site for like brisket latkes. And for mm. me, like, like a meat-based latka is very That's appealing. Deep. That's obviously not something that you were going to do. But a way in which they can be really like hearty mm. treats is to me right. is really exciting. Yeah, I like that. So like building more structure yeah. into the latka itself. That's yeah. cool. Because it's it's itself is, you know, it's like a big patty, What if right? I made a tofu latka? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> sure. I like. I you know. If I would you eat that. all could only see Stephanie's face no. right now. <laughs> um, no, I no, don't I'm, know that I would eat that. I'm in, I'm inspired. So, Lily, before we, we let you go, we have to check in on a mutual friend, Molly Ye, wonderful friend of the show, and is a friend of yours as well. She's the best. She's amazing. She, as our listeners may know, made the cake at my wedding and came to my Unreal. wedding. It's, she's just an amazing person. So, is there like a cabal of food bloggers like who are are you guys all friends are you guys like are there rivalries yes i mean all of the all of the above to be honest uh molly is a dear 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 friend and in the years that i've known her has made my life so much better including that she has given me the holy grail of hollow recipes so all your friends have heard a thing yes absolutely i go into this um weird mode every around new year's uh um like Roman calendar New Year's every year. and The other New Year's. Yes, exactly. And I end up, um, usually I'm staying out in Palm Springs with a, a group of friends. And I, I usually end up sort of making challah every day. Like I go on this challah bender, basically, because I have um, usually between like seven and 10 people to feed versus just me at home by myself. Um, so that's another real favorite time of year of mine when I just start like churning out holla. I like that you're like, it's the secular new year, but I will still act as though oh, yes. it is the fall. Absolutely. Like this is the time when I can really make it happen. <laughs> I think that is a good, as good a note as any to um, end on. How can um, our listeners follow you, Lily? Anywhere on social media or the internet at Kale and Caramel. And um, that's just spelled normally. Sometimes people want to know if there are two Ks. There are no, no, You're two like, Ks. no gimmicks. No gimmicks. It's just K A L E A N D C A R A M E L. And do you say 
caramel? Are you part of the caramel? Caramel. I say caramel. That seems that seems right to me. But I yeah. always get flack for saying. People things. always ask me, and I'm like, I don't know. And then they push me, and I say, I think I just say caramel. Yeah, but you, but people can say whatever they people want. People can say you can say whatever you want, and of course the the site is kaleandcaramel dot com. If you want to learn more about the book, it's kaleandcaramel dot com slash book, or anywhere that you can buy books. Amazing! Um, I think our listeners will really really enjoy it. I know I am, and I can't wait for those tofu latkes. Oh my goodness! If I'm you scared. build it, I will I will come. Really, yeah. Thank you so much. I know thank you're you, having a whirlwind tour, and we appreciate you stopping by. I'm so so honored to be here. Won't do to dream of caramel, to think of cinnamon and long for you. Uh, mazel tovs. Stephanie, would you like to... Uh... I have an E Mazel Tov or an I Mazel Tov, possibly. Um, this goes out to Lane Cunin, who put up this Instagram post um, last Thursday after our last episode airs. It says, this morning I listened to an episode of Hashtag Unorthodox, where they mentioned that Trader Joe's now sells Bamba. After work, I bought it. And then tonight, because I'm a real podcast nerd, I spotted at S. Butnick walking down 6th Avenue. <laughs> so literally leaving Trader Joe's on 6th Avenue, she saw me walking home. That was peak her. It was peak her for her whole life. She had That's Bamba right. in hand yeah. and spotted you. No, it was peak me, though, because I was just like, I'm sorry, what? She should have said hi. Yeah, say hi. Say hi. <laughs> That's right. That's What's wrong with but you? But I was also like, you know, sometimes I was actually listening to the new season of Heavyweight, which um, Jonathan Goldstein was on the, on our show, our live show last year. It, the new season is amazing. And usually I'm like on the phone with my mom, just like t- speaking loudly about like all my problems and like complaining to her. So I actually wish she had heard some of that. And now I probably actually shouldn't do that. Right. Because now you that know. you are a publicly recognized celebrity. So Lane, say hi next time. Although Lane, I would also say, and, and all of you uh buying the bomba, first of all, yay. Second of all, uh check out we should post it on the newsletter. There's an amazing recipe that that I wrote about in tablet that is sort of like it's like kind of like a viral thing that went among Israeli, like super stoned Israeli college students. It's bamba patai. Oh, yeah. So it's patai and the noodle sauce is is basically melted so bamba. So what you actually mean is pad thai. <laughs> what did I say? I don't know. I just want to make sure people know what you're saying. Pata- pad thai? Pad thai. Pad thai. Oh, pad oh, that's thai. what you meant? You mean the Thai food? Pad thai. Yeah, pad, pad, thai. thai. pad thai. Is this a new mishmash? No, no, no. In America, it's pad thai. My pa- immigrant friend. Pad thai. Pad, no, pad, pad thai. Or pad. Very the point is it's two words. Pad thai. Pad thai. Uh, with bamba. Amazing. Wow. I have yeah. not heard of that. It's amazing. I feel like Trader Joe's is going to start actually selling that now. That's so be right. careful. If you smoke the ganja for like three hours and then you <laughs> it really It all tastes need, good. And we really need something <laughs> yeah. that, you know. Because well, it's like a peanut sauce. That's right. You can make by mashing Crazy. two ingredients together very quickly. That's your jam. It's the ramen bowl. That's so right. Israelis do. Just, just no, mash a bomba. You, you make spaghetti. Oh, sorry. You actually mosh the bomba? You mosh the bomba. You mosh the bomba. You make the spaghetti yeah. and then when it, you drain the spaghetti and then you take the bomba and you smash the bomba into the spaghetti and it's amazing. Man. Oh wow, that's yeah. amazing. Uh do you have a mazel tov this week? I do. Leo, you know what can only this week there can only be one mazel tov. To yourself. Uh, this is <laughs> for finishing this is the marathon. To, to my to my incredible uh wife. Your bride. Who my bride. No, bride. Stop saying so my bride. Creepy. That's so creepy. <laughs> you think that's creepy? Yes. I think that's sweet. Like sometimes you'll hear elderly men, they'll be have they'll be walking hand in like hand. the week after your and wedding. This is my bride. Now it's sort of like the only person who gets like a bride is like Frankenstein. There's no bride. <laughs> I couldn't disagree more. Uh, couldn't disagree more. This is tra- right, continue, right to please us. Continue. You, know, then, you know, there's Peak Liel. This is Trough Liel. Okay. So to my beautiful wife, uh, who who rocked it this week, 
who uh, inspired me and kept me company, not only for the last 10 years, but, but also for, and, and more, you know, uh, more difficultly for the last 22.2 miles of this race. Love you. I love that. My, I have a, a tri-mazel tov, a trizel tov. First, I'm just going to read this letter because it's it says It's actually a it mazel tri. It's a, <laughs> it's a Get it's, with the program. Mazel bry. Uh, this is just, it says it all. And we're sorry that we're a week behind. We should have done this last week. Hi, Mark, Stephanie, and Liel. My wife and I have become loyal listeners over the past year after a friend first recommended Unorthodox. There's no question that our weekly listen has increased our Jewish consciousness, made us feel more connected to Jews and Judaism. Not unrelated, my wife, Yolanda Wu, decided sometime last year after we started listening to Unorthodox and after many years of living with me, a Jew, and seeing our two kids become B'nai Mitzvot, that she was ready to take the plunge and complete her conversion, begun but never completed, before our wedding 20 years ago. She will enter the mikvah for the first time on Thursday, October 26th, and emerge a Jewess. It would mean so much to us both if you could shout out to her on your show that week with a hearty mazel tov as Yolanda Wu becomes a Jew. And yes, the, the book Dr. Seuss always <laughs> wanted to write. Uh, so listen, um, I, I totally lost this guy's name, but his wife is Yolanda Wu. She became a Jew. That's the important thing. I'm not even going to bring up this guy. Yolanda Wu, who is now a Jew. We really love you. You. This is thank you for this letter. Thank you. Thank you. Actually, we have a, we're we're working on a few conversion uh, stories we have slash a few conversions. Yeah. yeah which, are, which are handling ourselves. We are a best in right here. We can we do it. We will do totally. conversions. Uh, anyway, Yolanda will mazel tov. That's, that's really fabulous. Amazing. And thank you. And thank you for being in touch. And thank you for being a listener. Um, second mazel tov. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Cole Sickinger for posting this on Facebook. Cole wrote, has anyone ever thought of referring to Mark as sweateronormative? It could be the new Mark explaining. Also, please do a live show in Denver. Sweateronormative. Sweateronormative. Very strong. I, that it's is, so good. That is, we should say right now you're actually wearing a tie with dogs on it. You are. A red yeah. tie with dogs yes. on it, which is very sweateronormative. And we are entering sweater season, so I will be literally oh sweateronormative. I don't know uh, how we could take it. Coming few months. Finally, I don't know how I dropped this ball, but you know how if you – if you, um, what is it, three wedding, according to the, the, the lore, if you make three shidduch, three, three shidduchim, to heaven, you, straight. you go straight to heaven mm-hmm. if you set up three couples and they get married. Well, you go straight, like right now, you go to heaven? <laughs> it's the rapture. You actually die and go to heaven. Right. By the way, do they have to remain married for a particular amount of time? Because it doesn't count if they get divorced after like a year. Right, I think the li- listeners, like five year. <laughs> listeners, tell us that one. Anyway, um, my wife and I jointly claim credit for uh, our friends Matt and Chloe some years ago, but it's been a while. I've been in a dry spell. Uh, yeah, and but then- you have like like seven or eight students and younger friends, right? That you have successfully not that many, but but you know, I'm I'm I work I work hard for them. I give them more than a grade. Let's put it that way. I give them. Oh, a, I, God. Give, I, so I don't think you can say that again. anymore. I give them a life. I no, give, I, I give I, my students more than a grade. <laughs> No, 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 no. Anyway, <laughs> what I'm about to say, this is all truth, which is that a, a few years ago, I did have a former student named Michael Schulson, who um, is a, a, a an attractive intellectual Jew from Tennessee. And then a couple years ago, um, I met an attractive intellectual Jewess from Tennessee. And I thought, not only... Do they have a similar flavor profile? To use the, <laughs> similar mouthfeel. To use the the cooking show term. Not only do they have a similar resume, similar flavor profile, but I actually think they like each other. Like they're quirky and interesting and weird in similar terrific ways. And Michael was living in North Carolina at the time and Emma was living in D.C. And I was like, Michael, I'm just – you might like this person. You should, you should meet her to talk journalism. They're both journalists. And um, damned if a few months ago they didn't get engaged. And I dropped the ball. They're, li- they're in Israel this year and um, – 
you know, I just somehow it slipped my mind, but they called me. He actually called me to tell me they just gotten engaged. It was very, very nice. Um, That's amazing. Absolutely. Michael Schultz and Emma Green. Everyone. Yay. Yay. I'm so terrible at matchmaking. Like, I, I really, I don't get it. Like, I have a lot of goodwill and enthusiasm, like too much enthusiasm. But for me, it's like, you're alive. The other person's alive. <laughs> you both enjoy breathing oxygen. Maybe you like each other. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com and in your hearts forever. Write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Follow Stephanie on Instagram at sbutnik. Join our Facebook group. Our show is produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Telushkin with help from Julia Frakes. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson. Our music is by Golem. Rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi Neil Omswitch of Santa Fe. If you think your rabbi should be our rabbi of the week, by the way, you can email me at moppenheimer at tabletmag.com and I'll take it under advisement. Kosher slaughtering by Rand Paul. We record at Argo Studios, which is fighting to preserve its tax loophole, and we're proud to be part of the Panoply Network. Tov yalla bye.